Well, here we are back again in COVID season. So it is, uh, it's dreadful to have to relate together like this, uh, though it does feel too familiar. We don't want it to become familiar. We want uh, this to end quickly, as Steph prayed that we, uh, we do trust God that will move us through it quickly. Let me pray as we get back into the Bible and do what we do uh, in this kind of way. Uh, let's wrestle with the Scriptures together as best we're able across the stream. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask, please, that you might work uh, through this difficult context and cause your word, please, to be a great blessing to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are pressing on in the Bible. We're coming to the last of our series in the book of Romans. It's been a great journey going through this book together. We're up to the last chapter and it is something of a cha challenge when you come to this final chapter of the book because it's, it's just full of personal greetings to name after name after name that are hard to pronounce and how do you pronounce them and so on and uh, you've got Mary which makes it easy verse 6 which is nice but what do you do with a chapter like this? Um, now most of it being greetings I mean I guess you could have a sermon on friendship Paul had lots of friends you would have friends and it's good to be friendly maybe that's the kind of quick message you could have or you come verse 17 and you see that he actually has this final warning about obstacles that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Paul finishes in quite an unusual fashion in the book of Romans with a warning about false teachers, uh, to keep away from these false teachers. They're not serving Christ but their own appetites, smooth talk and flattery. And there's a very helpful message about um, the danger of being attracted to people who have got the golden tongue, who have, uh, who have a, a way of being... Um, uh, attractive to you and so on I think there's a great warning there it matters that we keep the faith and keep the the shape of theology that Paul has delivered in the book of Romans and understanding that it's it's uh, it's only by Jesus that we can be saved it's only by trusting him by faith alone it's because of his death as a sacrifice in our place that we can be reconciled to a holy God who loved us even when we were enemies but by faith and faith alone, we can actually stand right with that God into eternity. That little piece of truth that Paul has delivered through this letter, we need to protect and guard and be careful that no one takes us away from. There are boundaries to the Christian faith. Now, that would be a, an important message to wrestle with, of course, and I dare say that's probably the main point of this chapter. It, it probably is Paul's concern to reinforce the theology that is delivered, uh, the importance of continuing to support him, verse 25 and 26, in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. These things are probably the main point of the chapter. But here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to focus somewhere else. I'm going to focus on a topic that's tangential to the passage. It's sort of, it's not really the main point of the passage. It's not even a point of the passage. It's just something that you can see in the passage. Um, now just doing this will be dangerous and I'm keen that you don't let us do this often as a church. Uh, very, very important that we kind of go chapter by chapter and look at what it has to say for its own sake, not that we impose our ideas on it. So what we're doing is uh, a little bit dangerous but given our context today, and I don't mean our COVID context, but given our cultural context, I think the tangential insight from this passage is worth spending time on. Now, what is that insight that comes from Romans 16? 
I think it's the place of women in the early church and so in the church broadly for us today. Now I suspect most of you will hear that as being the topic and immediately have some interest. Uh, great, it'd be good to hear about how the Bible thinks about women in the early church, that's for many of you very interesting and important but let me just add a bit more fuel to that interest because I think it is very important that we deal with this topic. The issue of men and women in our cultural context is a massive battleground. There's lots of confusion about how we think about women and how we think about men and how we think about their relationship. There's all con kinds of competing ideas and you add to that the whole issue of domestic violence which if you've not been following um, is epidemic in recent years. We're seeing uh, uh, episodes of domestic violence at a far higher rate than previous years and it's not just because of uh, an ease of reporting these days. Something is going on and there's an important conversation happening around the place about what the causes of domestic violence are, how we can minimise it. But many, some, are insisting that one of the main causes for domestic violence is Christianity. What the Bible teaches about men and women. Now, that is a massive thing to be said in our community. And in fact, it's one of the reasons many people won't even consider Christianity. Uh, if they hear that, uh, that kind of this claim is being made and they have some belief about it, they don't want to go near a thing that they believe will destroy the relationships of men and women. Now, that may be you tonight. You may, because of the stream, uh, have connected into church in a way that you might ordinarily have not come in because it's a little bit uh, more straightforward just to connect with us this way. And you might be having some of those suspicions. You know, I think I'd come along except for the church's view on women and what it thinks about men and women relationships. Now, because of all of this background and because it's such a massive issue, I've, I've made the judgment that tonight it is worth stepping aside from the main point of the chapter, just this once, to consider what this passage says about women and men. And I want to offer at the outset that it's actually very surprising for our culture. Now, in doing that, uh, I want to take us through the surprising things that it says about women, for, surprising to our culture. But I also want to, secondly, take a look at ourselves as people who are shaped by our culture and how that plays out in the way we read the Bible. So that's where we're going tonight. Let me dive in. Chapter 16, verse 1, it starts. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sencre, which I think is how you pronounce it. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. This chapter starts with a whole series of greetings uh, to people that Paul knew. He greets, on my count, 26 different individuals. He also greets two families and three house churches. That is a lot of people. In fact, it's probably more than many of us know. Paul Paul was connected to lot. Now, in its own right, that's significant. Paul is a people person. Every letter ends like this, actually, that he wrote, ends with greetings to various people he knew. People mattered to Paul. He wasn't some kind of cold zealot who was isolated. He was a very warm person who was engaged very warmly with relationships and relational uh, engagement. But thing to note a little bit more, 
of the 26 individuals that Paul addresses, 10 of them are women. Now that itself is significant as well. It's statistically impressive that out of the 26 individuals, almost half of them, close to half of them, are women. And in his culture and day and age, back in the first century, which was known for being very male-centric, it's noteworthy that Paul addresses so many women. It shows that Paul is not ruled by his culture. He, he is counter-cultural. He is, he is swimming a different direction. Now, more than this, the number of the women that Paul addresses are clearly important in the early church. So, Phoebe. Phoebe, we're told there in verse 1, is a deacon of the church at Sencre. Now, what's a deacon? Well, uh, the word just comes from the idea of a servant, uh, or actually probably the idea of a, a go-between. Um, but this word was just a common word used of all kinds of people in their role and activity. But from Acts chapter 6, there is evidence of the beginning of a formal structure within the early church that appointed men and women to the role of being a deacon. It became a kind of formal office uh, in the early church. And so this woman, um, uh, Phoebe, has been appointed seemingly to this office, this particularly formal role within the early church, which was hugely important. 1 Timothy chapter 3 has um, a, a whole list of uh, things that are required to test whether someone can become a deacon or a deaconess. And more than this, she's likely carrying this letter, the letter to the Romans from Paul, to the Christians in Rome. That is, if you want to post a letter to someone in the ancient world, you didn't just go to a red box somewhere and stick it in. Um, you didn't just ring up a courier, uh, you, you know, so Phoebe was, uh, Paul knew Phoebe and Phoebe's the one, it seems, is given the letter to carry it to the Christians in Rome. That is, she is a highly trusted messenger. And Paul says that when she arrives, verse 2, I, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and give her any help she may need from you. She's been a benefactor of many people, including me. She's been a very significant person in Paul's life and he wants the Romans to know this and treat her with respect. See, there straight away, Paul, Paul brings to, to light this, this woman, very likely a single woman, on her own travelling, um, who is a very significant person within the early church. Then you come to verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Now, those two names, the first of the, those names, Priscilla, is a woman. And we meet Priscilla and Aquila half a dozen times through the New Testament as a married couple. And Paul had quite a bit to do with them over the time of the New Testament. And interestingly, of the six times that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in the New Testament, four of them are mentioned with her name first. And... Paul says that these are co-workers with him in Christ Jesus. She is a fellow worker with Paul. And he adds to this that all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them, Priscilla and Aquila, not just to the husband, but to the wife and the husband, to both these people. And he says 
Greet also, verse 5, the church that meets in their house. Not his house, but their house. The house of both of them. She's not a shadow to a husband in Paul's mind. He sees her as standing alongside her husband in the work of ministry. Then there's Mary, who worked hard for you. Mary who worked hard, it's this probably a reference to her gospel ministry that she was engaged in at great cost to herself for the sake of others. Uh, Mary is a significant person for Paul. To, to, then you uh, will jump past verse 7 but you come down to verse 12 and you see reference to two women there who worked hard in the Lord as well. Uh, and then you get uh, Persis, uh, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Uh, but also a woman Paul calls my dear friend. Persis, a woman Paul says is my dear friend. And then you get mentioned, verse 13, of Rufus, uh, the, his, Rufus's mother, uh, who has been a mother to me also. Uh, Rufus's mother is a significant person in Paul's life, who's been compassionate and considerate to Paul and care, caring for him. You put all of this together and what you get is a picture of a man, Paul, who had a lot of time for women. He honoured them and he thought very highly of them. Verse 7, let's come back there. Verse 7 particularly uh, makes this point because it's likely that the second name in verse 7, so you've got Andronicus and Junior, the second name is likely a female name who are, he says, outstanding among the apostles and they are in Christ Jesus before I was. This is quite a striking statement about a woman in the first century in the early church, her place within the early church. Now it is, verse 7 is tricky to translate, let me just take you through a little piece of work here on verse 7. Um, there's two bits in verse 7 that are a little bit ambiguous, uh, we're not, it's not entirely clear how to translate two bits of the verse. And the first one is the name for Junior. There has been debate down through the centuries as to whether Junior is, a, is a, um, a woman's name or a man's name. Is it masculine or is it feminine? And uh, the evidence can be compiled in different directions and so on and so forth. Uh, there's quite a bit of debate about it. The evidence goes both ways and some people land on it needing to be a man because of the implications of her, this person being among the apostles. And that lends them to think that it must therefore be a man. But when you look at the evidence in a very plain, just without reference to all the consequences, you just look at what the evidence for the name is, whether it's a man or a woman. Um, it's my judgment, and, and many people judge this way as well, that it's a woman being referenced here. It seems most likely that's the evidence the direction pushes us. Second bit of ambiguity there in the verse is, they are outstanding among the apostles. That little phrase there, outstanding among could be translated as, um, thought of as outstanding by the apostles, regarded as outstanding by the apostles. Now you can see how that plays out differently. If they're outstanding among the apostles, then these two people, man and woman, are among the apostles. They're within the group of apostles. If it's outstanding, regarded as outstanding by the apostles, then they're not among the apostles. The apostles think of them as outstanding. Now again, this debate goes back and forward 
uh, and uh, very conservative people who uh, kind of have a certain view about men and women in church life um, insist that it can't be among the apostles because that would suggest a woman. So they insist it must be outstanding, uh, regarded as outstanding by the. But others push it the other way, people who want to see women in different roles and so on, and they say, no, it must be. My judgment? I think it's as the NIV. I think what you have here is a statement by Paul that Junior, a woman, is outstanding among the apostles as one of them. Now that is a very significant thing to note and what it tells you is that Paul has a very high view of women. He has a high view of their work within the church, as people within the church, he has them as dear friends, he regards uh, one of them as a mother to him and uh, has a great deal of time for Phoebe, the extraordinary picture of Paul and his relationship with women. And what's most important in all of this, I dare say, is that he's not saying any of this to make a point about men and women. He's, he's just throwing out a list of greetings, unconsciously, spontaneously, and that's significant. You see, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, you, you know, when you come to church, uh, you'll make sure you're careful about what you say. But if we catch you in an unguarded moment, when you're tired and stressed, then what you say and when you get angry and when you swear, and th this will tell you what's actually in your heart. We'll find out the real you when you're unguarded, when you're spontaneous, when you're not putting it on. What you have here in the final chapters, the final chapter is Paul just throwing off greetings. There's no agenda in his giving of these greetings. He's got no aim to make a point for 21st century political police. He's not trying to impress. He's just, he, he's, he's just giving names of people he wants greeted. And what emerges naturally from his heart is a completely natural affirmation of women alongside men as fellow workers, women to be praised, together with men. There isn't a hint in this whole chapter of an insecure male protecting male patriarchy. He, he works with women, he loves women, he's their dear friends, he's endorsing them to others. For Paul, it is natural, normal and praiseworthy that women work in the home Rufus's mother, and work out of the home in ministries, working hard in the Lord, and are single, travelling on their own, doing ministry tasks. Phoebe, this is entirely natural for Paul, that women can be independent of men and doing their own activities in life. This is normal for Paul. Now, I'm conscious that I say all of this and point it all out, that many today in our culture will find it quite surprising, shocked even. Now why is that? It's because we've been telling ourselves in our culture, our secular world, we've been telling ourselves a story for a long time now. We've formed a narrative to justify the modern liberation movement Actually, a little bit more than that, to strengthen the agenda of the modern liberation movement, 
to win more people to support it and all that it's doing and all that it wants to do and turn their backs on anything that might hinder their agenda. We've been fed a narrative, been told a story about history and it goes like this. It's us and our generation, the last couple of generations, that have been fighting the noble battle of liberation for women. We have been the first to do it. We've been battling to liberate women out from under the harsh oppression of men, the patriarchy. And up until the last 50 years, women have been cruelly, harshly crushed under men. Uh, but we are finally, the last couple of generations, overturning that harsh and cruel oppression and winning the battle for liberation. And the main culprit of historical oppression, so we're told in this narrative, is Christianity and especially Paul. Up until the rise of the Christian faith, so this story goes, this narrative goes, up until the rise of the Christian faith, women were very largely free. They were free thinkers. Society was much more healthy, the Roman and Greek culture and so on. But then along came Christianity, or at least the Pauline version of it, and women were then subjugated under men. But thanks, so the story goes, to brave activists, we're now freeing women from this oppressive regime. Now, have you heard that story? Have you picked up that narrative around the place? It's an inspiring one. It's just not true. <laughs> oh, some parts of it are true, which is the case with all narratives. It is true that women have been treated horrendously by men down through the centuries and continue to be. Uh, it is a great offence against women that men have acted like that. And it's true that many within the church have perpetrated that. These things are true and we need to end it. There has been and still is terrible oppression of men over women. It is horrendous. Domestic violence is real and it's among church people. And it's a great tra travesty that that's the case. It ought not be so. Um, and many who are kind of drawing attention to this, there is much courage that they're bringing to bear that we want to listen to, we need to hear. There is in this narrative some that is very good, some that's being told and drawn attention to that we need to hear and pay attention to. But like most narratives... It's made much more of some parts to paint the whole thing in a certain direction for its own purposes. See, what I mean is this. In our day and age, we are in a battle. We are in a battle, a spiritual battle over the Bible and especially over Paul, the author of much of the New Testament. That's why actually the warning in the chapter happens there in verse 17. Paul is aware that even from the first century, there are many who were fighting what he was bringing, the teaching that he was offering. Many were disputing with it and, and undermining it and so on. It's been happening from then, roll the way down through today. Um, there's been a battle over the Bible, over the teachings of Paul. This began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. 
back then there was a battle over whether humans will listen to God and his word or whether we'll make up our own way to pursue life. The early chapters of Genesis play it out like this, that an evil presence, Satan, um, came to Adam and Eve and tempted them to, did God, to tempted them to doubt what God had said and then tempted them to doubt why God had said it. Tempted them to doubt God's motives, that he wasn't for their good, but wanted actually to keep them down, to oppress them, to crush them. And it's the same today. The same spiritual battle is going on. Now, it's not simply that. Just keep hearing this. um, Many of the activists who are raising the concerns about domestic violence and oppression and and so on uh, are um, acting out of very good motive and very concerned and are raising some important things that need to be heard and listened to and paid attention to. But within all of that, there is a mood a a, a great effort to paint the Bible as the enemy, to create hostility against it, so that people won't follow it, but will rather follow the new activist. And Paul is at the centre of it. The Bible's bad, Paul is really bad. It's It's a fight over credibility, authority, And it feels in many ways like parents fighting over the kids in a divorce. And I'm sorry if this has been something of your experience, but um, tragically when parents' uh, marriage fails and there are kids involved, sometimes, not always, but sometimes one parent in their insecurity will try and um, foster in the children a a kind of an anger towards the other partner. partner. Will try and kind of feed some hostility towards the other um, that they might gain greater support from the kids for them. And, uh, you know, half-truths are spun into larger stories and narratives so that the children will actually begin to hate the other one and love this one. Um, But here's the thing, in that context, when the kids eventually grow up and meet the one that they've had painted for them as the enemy, when they finally meet that person, often what happens is they begin to see it wasn't as simple as that. They begin to see, yes, there were some bits that were problematic, but... He or she wasn't all that they were told that he or she was. And for many young people growing up into that context, it can feel like the lights have gone on in the room and all the furniture now needs to be rearranged in my life as I completely have to reassess how I've thought about my mum or my dad, having heard all the stories. And it's, it can be hugely transforming for them. You know, the Bible and Paul, the world, the world wants us to think as negatively as possible about the Bible. It wants us to think as negatively as possible about Paul. He hates women. He's a misogynist. He's oppressive and created oppression. But when, as an adult, you actually read the Bible properly and you read the difficult bits in context and you read the larger frame of what the Bible's teaching, you actually have the lights go on in your room and you find, actually, Paul's not the person I was led to believe he was. He doesn't hate women. It's just not true. He wasn't insecure. He wasn't oppressive. He valued and honoured 
He almost didn't see gender. He almost didn't see a person's uh, uh, male or femaleness. He just saw into their character. And so he honours women, he honours men, and he has good friends and he dearly loves and he has one who mothers and supports him and so on. This is not just Romans 16, you get it in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about women being the glory of man. That's not what he's meant to say, but he does. He says women are actually the best a man can be. He actually has a high view of women. In chapters 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about women in their role as people who speak and bring words of encouragement, who, who pray and lead in prayer. Paul is not the hater of women that we're led to believe he is. And in one sense, what I'm doing with you tonight is wanting to start this rediscovery. Don't fall for the narrative that we're fed in the community. Yes, there have been some great wins for women over the last decades and men have been taught some important lessons about how we treat women and so very lots of stuff has been helpful much has been horrible in societies towards women but the problem's not Paul and the Bible the problem is Paul and the Bible in the hands of sinful men and women who twist and distort what it has to say and it's not, it wasn't all light and life outside of Christianity before Christianity came. It was oppressive and horrible and hurtful and destructive. And Christianity down through 2,000 years has not been all dark. It's, it's been wonderful liberation and freedom. In fact, the, 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 the beginning of the feminist movement in the 1900s was led by Christian women, strong women. We've had a history of strong Christian women down through 2,000 years. I want to encourage you to read for yourself what the Bible has to say and don't simply embrace the narrative that we're being fed. There's the first thing. Look at what the Bible has to say, what Paul has to say about women and be encouraged, surprising as it might be. But second, I want to offer that there's a challenge in much of this for us as people who are immersed in a secular culture. Now, this is tricky to get hold of, so let me take a moment with you on this. When you, when you live and breathe a culture, it shapes you to want things to be a certain way and to bring agendas and prejudices to whatever you look at. And it's possible to come to the Bible with a set of prejudgments, with a set of agendas that I want the Bible to give me answers that are like this and not like that. You come with a desire to actually want the Bible to be read a certain way. And so the danger is that we don't read what it's saying, we shape it, distort it to say what we want it to say. Now this is nothing new in 2 Peter chapter 3 is it 15 16 and 17 Peter says this happened from the very beginning the Bible in the hands of sinners means that it can be distorted by sinners it's always been the danger for us we have this thing we're prone to selective reading to only notice certain verses or passages that suit the way we want them to be 
And in the passages we notice, we tend to put the evidence together to make it bend in the directions we want it to go. This is not the fault of the Bible, it's us as we come to it as readers. So let me offer two cultures that we can live in that create prejudices and agendas that we'll bring to the Bible. Let me break this up for us. Some of us will live in what I'm going to call 1950s culture. Now I don't mean you were born in 1950 but what I mean is because you can be a 20 year old and be a 1950s culture. What's a 1950s Christian? Well the 1950s to put it very crassly this is a this is not a great accurate representation of the 1950s but bear with me just for the sake of a label back in the 1950s you might imagine you know um, the way men and women related were very simplistic one-dimensional men went off to work women stayed at home looked after the kids and did the cooking and waited for the husband to come home you, you weren't to have a job outside of home you were just to be that was your focus and you did volunteer work with the women's guild <laughs> And there's the 1950s kind of picture of men and women and Christianity was kind of, let's say, brought to teach that that's the way it should be and that's the best thing. 1950s Christianity. Now if you have a 1950s way of thinking about men and women, what would you do with Romans 16? Well, you won't notice it. What did they do back in 1950? they probably didn't even notice it was there. They didn't notice the greetings and what it meant about men and women. It isn't easy to be selective, you see. They focused on 1 Timothy 2 and Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 11, chapters that seemed to, though I don't think did, supported their particular way of thinking about men and women. Um, and so missed a whole bunch of stuff that the Bible was actually teaching. Missed the rich equality teaching in the, in the Bible, that men and women have been made in the image of God together, that women are co-heirs with, with men in Christ, that women are addressed as independent agents who, who function and make their own decisions in life, who aren't subservient but entrust themselves. It is a whole flavour of the Bible that is very different and undercuts that 1950s way. Proverbs 31, that teaches that the, the beautiful wise woman is the one who uh, has a life that's broad and rich. 1950s Christian, you can be 20 year old and a 1950s Christian. And I want you tonight to hear the fuller picture of the way the Bible talks about men and women let that seep into your consciousness your your agendas and flavor the way you relate with men and women now it can be hard because you might actually want it to be a certain way and changing is difficult but change we must to be faithful to the scriptures to live a life with your wife with women in a way that controls them that is abusive towards them is deeply offensive to God and it needs to be changed and I might just say women if you do find yourself in relationships where you're abused speak up 
Let me offer the, the problem of agendas, the 1950s, that I come to the Bible and selectively read and only see what I want to see. The problem with agendas goes another way as well. It's there with the 1950s kind of Christian, if you like, but it's also there with the 21st century progressive Christian. The person raised in the last 20 or 30 years through the education system in our culture who is progressive, let's say, you will have your prejudices and agendas as well. You know, you'll, you'll hear uh, perhaps tonight the plain reading of Romans 16 and go, yeah, uh, very glad to have that pointed out. But will you find it as easy to read 1 Timothy 2 plain? It may not be so easy for you to come to those kind of passages and let them speak because you don't want them to say what they're plainly saying. And in fact, it's possible to have an agenda, 21st century progressive agenda, that means you'll overread Romans 16. So let me show you this again, verse 7. In verse 7, I mentioned you've got Junior and Andronicus who are outstanding among the apostles. Well, it's interesting the last 20 years or so, many progressive uh, Christians are wanting to say that therefore means that Junius, a woman, was an authority in the early church like the apostles were. Now that conclusion is driven by an agenda. Because the problem with it is the evidence doesn't point in that direction. I think she is a woman un within the group of apostles but when you look at the whole new testament you'll find that the word apostle has a number of different meanings it can just mean in a very narrow sense the 12 apostles plus paul which were the authority of church life but it has a broader usage it has two other circles of use that are broader still and you can chase it up later but in 2 corinthians chapter 8 and philippians chapter 2 You'll see the language of apostle in the original language used of a group of people who weren't the authority in churches but were emissaries, ambassadors, church planters. And so it's very likely what we have here with Andronicus and Junior is a church planting couple who amongst this broader group were regarded in very high terms. They might have been sent from one church to another as a married couple to represent that church to them. The point I'm wanting to make this here is that it's possible to have 1950s agendas that don't see what you need to see and it's possible to have 21st century blinkers and prejudices and blindness that makes you push the Bible to be saying more than it is saying and not notice or not want the Bible to be saying other things that it's saying. We all bring these agendas and we need to have great care to come to the Bible and let it say what it says and let it shape us. Now that's a task that we need to do together so that we can help each other see our blind spots, see what we're missing. Always come with softness to the scriptures, with a, with a readiness to be humbled before it and taught and changed, even if it means letting go of cherished 21st century values. So let me pull this together. Women, can I encourage you again to see yourself through the eyes of the Bible? Um, 
You are a full image bearer of God together with men. You are not subservient to men. You are given honour and significance. Your life of work and ministry is regarded highly by Paul. It's regarded highly by the early church. Now, in saying this, I always feel a bit odd. It's not me telling you you have this. It's God saying this. I'm just trying to point out what God says for you, that you might embrace it uh, and know it for yourself. For my experience, it is a great privilege to work alongside so many wonderful women. Uh, we are blessed in this church to have women who are very capable, very competent, more than me <laughs> and wonderfully so amongst us who work so hard can i say to men when you get married to love your wives if you're married love them now she is a co-heir of christ with you honor her cherish her don't ever harm her don't ever coerce her control her don't ever be violent towards her Use your strength and you have a strength that's God-given to serve. Women who become mothers, what a great blessing. It is an honourable life to be a mother. Don't think of it as less. It's a great blessing. Single women, Phoebe, you don't need a man to define yourself. You aren't defined by marriage. You can have, will have, an entirely God-honouring, powerful role in God's purposes as a single woman. Highly esteemed and regarded. You know, some of this came home to me uh, a, a little while ago. I went to a um, birthday party um, and I'm up to that stage in... Well, no, let me rephrase this. I'm going to 60-year-old birthday parties which just tells you I've got friends who are very much older than me. But um, I went to a 60th birthday party. Uh, it was a woman who was celebrating her 60th birthday party, her 60th birthday, and her husband put on the occasion. And uh, during, towards the end of the evening, he, um, he sat with his wife and shared with us about his wife. And this was a man who was brought very deeply into... The patterns of the Bible uh, is complementarian, so he believes in full equality, but there's an order and a shape to married life and to men and women's ministries and so on. But he sat talking about his wife in ways that were deeply moving. He honoured her, he held her up as glorious, and he gave such regard and respect to his wife and praised her before us all. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, you're not meant to be like this. You're a Christian man who believes the Bible. You're meant to be oppressive of women and you're meant to be, they're meant to, this is not fitting. But what it demonstrated is, the closer you come to the scriptures, the more engaged you are with the Bible, the more it will shape you to be that kind of person. Loving honouring, respectful, thoughtful, careful of women around you. I see it work out amongst us, among so many men and women together. You see, God's purpose for his people is good. Don't buy into the line that the narrative is selling us, that Christianity is somehow to blame. 
Because let me finish with this. Recognise how good God's word is to us. When he said, don't eat the fruit, it wasn't because he was down on it, it was because he wanted to bless us. When he gives a shape to men and women's relationships, it's not because he's down on us, he wants good for us. Trust him. Trust him and his word. God has created us equal with a radical equality, with a kind of equality that has differences built into it to give complementarity and a rich tapestry to the way we work together that's stronger because of it. God intends good for us in his word. Work hard to listen to it and let it shape us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the great blessing it is that you have spoken to us, that you have given a word that cuts through the darkness and the foolishness and the stories we hear. Help us please to be people who trust your word wherever it takes us. Help us to be people who put aside our prejudices and our agendas and what we want the Bible to be saying. Help us to be people who sit humbly under it and listen to what you actually are saying, that you might shape us to be the people you want us to be. And we ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen.